Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. Uh, Really excited to talk about today's content. We're going to be talking about safe helpers in regards to domestic abuse. Who is safe when we seek help for domestic violence and domestic abuse? But before we do that, I need to remind you there are other resources available to you. If you have enjoyed the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is probably your next stop. PeaceWorks University is our online membership site. We have hundreds and hundreds of resources behind the paywall, uh, resources to help you in counseling and care and understanding the dynamics and impact of abuse from a gospel-centered perspective. If you'd like to learn more about PeaceWorks University, you can find out uh, about the membership at chrismoles.org. All right, let's jump into today's content. Uh, Today we're talking about people helpers, and there is a lot to be said about the ways in which people intervene and attempt to help in cases of domestic abuse. And I would say, at the risk of of ostracizing myself, I hope that this doesn't come off uh, in negative in any way, but it's rare that you hear about good people helpers, right? It's, It's just rare that somebody, you know, comes across the airwaves or social medias or the blogs and says, hey, this person is safe and they're competent and they were super helpful in addressing cases of domestic abuse. What's more than likely, right, is that the positives do not get reported on, obviously, for good reason. We're not airing anybody's dirty laundry, but what is negative gets highlighted, and that's understandable. Now, the distinction that I want to make is The difference between people helpers that are unsafe, uh, between those who are ignorant and those who have, let's say, animus. And I would say the vast majority of cases that I've worked in which domestic violence cases have been handled poorly, the majority of them have been handled from a place of ignorance rather than a place of animus. Now, does that mean that this um, intentionality or people trying to destroy people or control people uh, using power and using institutions isn't present? Of course not. It is there, and uh, we need to highlight that, and we need to oppose that. I think the issue is is you know, not every rock we turn over is a poor people helper. There are some really skilled people helpers out there that we need to be referring each other to. There are also some unskilled people helpers that need education and equipping, and then there are some dangerous people helpers that aren't helping people at all. So I want to talk just briefly about that today in the hopes that it'll help us navigate the waters of seeking out help when we find ourselves in cases or working cases of domestic abuse. Because many helpers, many helpers that we come in contact with are flying blind. There's usually two aspects to flying blind when you're working a case of domestic abuse. The first is that they are ill-equipped. This is really a big burden of mine. It's something that you guys who follow us on the podcast are aware of is that the vast majority of people helpers within the church or even within the culture are ill-equipped to address cases of domestic abuse. 
Now, before I move on to the other part, let me really drill down at this ill-equipped piece because I think this is something that there's a lot of assumptions that roll around. I have never met anyone or have been part of any case that was perfect. In fact, I say quite a bit, there are no perfect interventions. The reality is the vast majority of cases involving this type of complex subject matter, uh, diverse populations, different people, personalities, desires, outcomes, and expectations, you're going to have moments of failure or moments of frustration in any case that you work. There are no perfect interventions. And one of the things that really captures an ill-equipped people helper is those frustrations mount and they tend to revert back to what they know. That's, that's been my experience. And so in the face of complexity and frustration, reverting back to marriage-focused solutions or uh, church-based discipleship or, or uh, church discipline or uh, some kind of therapeutic model that has worked for them in the past, all of which may be really good under normal circumstances, but are impotent in addressing areas of domestic abuse. And so I hold no animus myself or no um, issue necessarily with ill-equipped caregivers other than they need education. Uh, the other way in which a lot of caregivers and people helpers fly blind is it's not just that they're ill-equipped, they may be ill-informed. And this is one thing that we've got to do a better job of managing both at the uh, counseling and care level, but then also at the disclosure level. I've worked with many counselors, uh, in particular counselors over the years, who have been frustrated because there was an expectation that they would counsel cases of domestic abuse, but no one acknowledged domestic abuse. Meaning there was a hope that if we came to marriage counseling, they would intuitively, as a counselor, recognize the problem and then bring it up. Most counselors don't have that skill. Most people don't have that skill especially in areas of domestic abuse because abusers are so skilled at manipulation uh, that if a problem is presented as a marriage problem, most counselors will address it as a marriage problem. And I don't know how much equipping we can do as trainers and, and helpers to remedy that. We need to do a little better job with screening and pre-screening. We need to be able to read conflict a little better uh, but if an issue is presented, say, as a relationship problem, communication problem, or marriage problem, if the person is not a domestic violence expert or an advocate or somebody who is in law enforcement who's working those cases or social work who's working those cases over and over and over again, more than likely they're going to address what's presented. And so those are two really big barriers that, uh, you know, I think we've got some handles on how we can address them. But for you, the listener, you know, I want you to think about being in that situation. One, a people helper who's ill-equipped, stepping into a case of domestic abuse, not knowing the dynamics or impact, not having the skill or the information necessary to really affect change. Or you're a counselor or caregiver or people helper that steps in and is ill-informed. You honestly believe you're addressing a marriage problem or a family relational issue and you don't see the cues or the little uh, indicators that this is something deeper or more sinister. I would say that that's the majority of individuals that I have worked with or cases that I've worked with. It's very few of them are intentionally derailing the process. Let, let me give you an example. I was working uh, not too long ago, long enough to mention, but 
uh, some counselor education and one uh, counselor who I'm going to assume based on their demeanor and their intelligence that they are an exceptional counselor. I get every impression from this person that they are an exceptionally gifted counselor. And, but in our discussions of domestic abuse and in the role play section, as we're working through cases and trying to build skill, uh, the counselor was continuing to revert back to directive care. Now, just for the sake of, of the listeners that may not be familiar, um, directive counseling would be the idea of giving the counselee or the client instructions. It's, it's very... Um, it's very well used within biblical counseling. So in my circles of biblical counseling, we typically provide directive care. We apply the scriptures to the life of the person. And so at some point, there's an intersectionality between listening, affirming, uh, reflecting, but then instructing. And so instruction will be part of that. It's not uh, exclusive to biblical counseling, there are a lot of counseling models that use directive care as opposed to non-directive, which would be kind of re just reflecting back, uh, although that's an oversimplification, but hopefully you know what I'm getting at. I think this particular counselor, very skilled at directive care, very skilled at instruction, uh, during the role play time, during the interaction time, found themselves giving the victim in this case, in this fictional case, instruction. You need to do this and you need to do this and was very determined to get this list built, to get this um, pattern built, and to get this homework assigned so that the victim could be free. All the things that the counselor wanted were good things, but the means by which they approached it was inappropriate, right? Because if you've been following us for a while, you know that one of the rules of victim care, one of the essentials of victim care is empowerment. Here's an individual who is already living under coercive control. They're already being told what to do. They're already being demeaned and destroyed. They already have lost part of what we would call their personhood, right? They, they haven't been effectively functioning. They've been functioning uh, in, in response to someone else. So as a people helper, it would be inappropriate for us to take on that role, to now be the new instructor, the new uh, go-to person, the new idol, potential idol. And so this counselor, very gifted, uh, and I'm sure an exceptional counselor, needed to have a few things tweaked to learn that, yes, all the things you wanted to accomplish are good things, but they may not come about in this first meeting. You may not get to all of these things because your role right now is to listen and then to resource. You could have given some of these things as options, right? So here was a well-meaning caregiver that just needed a little education, a little skill building to become better at their job. And I think that is one of the things, the most prominent thing that we're dealing with is at PeaceWorks is how do we educate counselors and people helpers um, and institutions to do a better job at uh, educating their people, at uh, educating themselves, and growing in their responses so that their responses are safer. Because most of the folks we're working with, as I've said, are not intentionally trying to derail the process. However, <laughs> however, here's the, big, here's the big switch. That's not the rest of the story, as it were. That's not the whole story. Because we do need to be aware that there are folks out there 
who for whatever reason, right, whether it be, uh, as I said at the beginning, not ignorance but animus, whether it be some intentional desire to derail or whether it be a desire for control, which very well could be possible, um, whether it be institutional protectionism or some other motivation, there are some folks out there that are taking advantage of victims and their disclosures in order to be that new abuser. And they value uh, re-victimization. Where the ignorant helper doesn't isn't trying to re-victimize, I don't think. They just need some education and some help so they can have better responses in the future. Uh, there are some helpers who are not helping. They are actually controlling others. And so I just want to talk about that for a little bit and uh, just give you some warnings on, on how to recognize those folks that are out there. And here's, here's the thing that is really driving this. I think I have encountered some well-meaning people helpers who have been accused of this and you know they have done everything that they can do to repair poorly handled cases, right? They've repented, they've acknowledged where they've messed up, they've tried to take a step back, they've tried to get the proper education, they've tried to build proper teams and, and do the things um, but it's too little too late and they are lumped in with individuals who are obviously operating with ill motives. And so I think it's helpful that we um, at least have some red flags or some signposts in place to say, this is not a safe helper and here's some ways that you can acknowledge it. And I think the first thing is um, when evaluating a helper, the, one of the questions I would have for them is, um, have they received any training at all in the dynamics and impact of abuse? I have found that some of the um, ill-intentioned helpers in the world um, are the least equipped. And, and again, it, it kind of balances out with that ignorance piece, but I have found some very um, poor helpers, but um, wicked helpers, to be quite honest, who got their entire education from self-reflection or, for lack of a better word, from blogs. I mean, honestly, if, if, if you're searching out a people helper and their entire education in domestic abuse came from reading a series of blogs, um, I would really challenge that. I would encourage you to go find someone else. Someone trained in victim advocacy would be my first uh, recommendation. Um, <clears throat> if they do say, if, if there is a helper and they're like, yeah, I've been trained, the question is where from? Um, because there are some really bad training agencies out there who are spreading some pretty wicked things um, about control and power and abuse. Um, one other thing I would ask is talk to me about how you've managed cases in the past uh, and see if they have a track record of doing a few things, of providing for safety, of planning, of empowerment, of uh, resourcing, right, and of partnerships. And if those aren't present, then that's probably an unsafe place. Um, do you have an experience? That would be another aspect. Like, what's your experience in this work look like? And there's a big difference between somebody who's been working 30 years in social work, right, and somebody who has been working um, 30 years in um, youth ministry. There's nothing wrong with youth ministry, 
But just saying I've been working 30 years in youth ministry doesn't tell me anything about your exposure or experience with domestic abuse. 30 years in social work gives me a little bit more confidence that you've at least seen the problem. Hopefully this is making some sense. And then here's a big one. Who do you partner with? And I think that's, to me, the biggest indicator that someone is willing to be safe is are they willing to share responsibility? If the people helpers that we're pursuing and interacting with, if they do everything, right? If they do everything at best, all right? At best, they're foolish, all right? And at worst, they're ill-willed. Did you hear me on that? If they do everything, at best they're foolish, at worst they're ill-willed. Here's what I mean by that. These type of cases and type of work require multiplicity of helpers, multiple eyes on the prize. And if your people helper says to you, well, sure, I can function as your counselor, I can function as your advocate, I can function as your partner's um, person who's confronting them, that your partner's accountability, I can function as the judge, jury, and executioner. I can function as your safe place. I can function right as your shelter. And, and they're feeding you the idea that they can do it all. Then I'm afraid that they are a dangerous person, either through their own folly or some desire to control, uh, control you as a victim. And I know that that might seem weird or, or harsh or... But this is, this is one of the concerns that I have is at least with the ignorant, and we were all been there. I mean, I was once in that camp. I, I still am to some degree. Like I still am learning about this work all the time, even having been directly involved for 15 years. I mean, hands, hands in the work, uh, boots on the ground for 15 years. I'm still learning stuff. And so I need help. I need partners. I need people watching my back and correcting my my missteps. So at least with the ignorant, the ill-equipped, there's a desire to learn. With the more sinister or the more um, what we called aminous at the beginning, individuals with ill will, there seems to be this, this desire to keep others at bay. Everyone else is suspect except for the helper. If that's the case, then they are actually, they actually have more in common with your abuser than they do with a genuine people helper and they are dangerous. If your behavioral health center or counseling center or church attempts to do everything, um, everything, then they more than likely will do some things poorly. Whether again, that's through ignorance or through animus. If there's some kind of isolatory nature to the counseling and care, then I would recommend that you find somebody who's willing to partner. I hope that makes sense. That's a big question for me. Who do you partner with? And if the answer is, oh, I do it all myself. I'm the expert. I'm the answer man or answer woman. I'm the, the one you should follow. I have a wonderful plan for your life. That's really inconsistent with good advocacy and good domestic abuse work. Um, good helpers, good helpers are humble enough to say, tell me more, how can I help? Right? I often tell, and this is something I will land the plane with, I often tell the people that I train that one of the best postures we can maintain throughout this process is recognizing that, that you are the dumbest person in the room 
And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a positive way, that the victim um, or the client, if they're a perpetrator, that you're working with knows more about their situation than you do, and the Holy Spirit knows more than both of you. If you can come into the situations with a level of humility and say, I don't know, right, then I would trust that person, <laughs> that mentality, more than I would someone who has all the answers. Because it's the humble person, the person who says, I don't know, that's willing to stay with you and present and learn with you. It's the answer man or the answer woman that I think um, will be tempted to do it for you. And in this work, whether it's with victims or perpetrators, uh, helpers cannot do it for you. The last thing that a victim needs is a controlling helper who does everything for them. They need empowerment and resourcing. They need to be honored and respected. And um, the last thing a perpetrator needs is a friend who's going to do the work for them. The last thing they need is some collusive buddy who's going to walk along. They need somebody to hold them accountable, right? That, that's even a better friend or a better helper is somebody who's willing to stay firm and resolute. So, yeah, my hope is we can see less, or I should say more, gifted, equipped, and uh, good helpers in the work of domestic abuse, more safe helpers. And I think the best way we can do that, and this is the drum that I beat all the time, is through education continuing to raise awareness and education because the vast majority of, of people helpers want to do better. And then when we come across one who has ill will, right, we call them on it. We remove ourselves from them and we ask some of those key questions. Are they even trained and equipped in this work? Are they operating in isolation as if they're the answer man or answer woman? Do they try to control my life like my abuser did? Those are some key questions uh, to wrestle with. All right. Thank you again for joining us on the PeaceWorks podcast. We appreciate you guys so much. And until next time, God bless.